Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Nathan Rubin, founder of Millennial Politics, and Kat Brooks, co-founder of the Anti-Police Terror Project and co-founder and executive director of the Justice Teams Network, a statewide coalition of rapid response organizations across California that build infrastructure to support victims and survivors of state violence and mass criminalization. We really admire the work that you've done and the work that you're doing. Could you give us an overview of your activism and what motivated you to launch the Justice Teams Network? Whew, that's a long one. Um, so sure. So I grew up in a political family um, from a very young age in a not-so-political place. Right? I was born and raised in Las Vegas, Nevada. We used to call it Little Mississippi. And the blacks lived on one side and the white folks lived on the other. And I grew up with stories of police officers burying black people in the desert. Um, I watched my own father tormented and harassed by law enforcement. And ultimately, I lost him for several years to the uh, prison industrial complex. Um, continued to have really negative interactions with law enforcement growing up, including being threatened with rape at the age of 17. Um, when I graduated college, I graduated as an actress and I moved to Los Angeles, uh, I ended up working for an organization right in the heart of South Central and doing work on a myriad of issues. Um, but my big focus was really around education advocacy. And it was through that pathway that I landed in Oakland. And I had gone home. So I'm working on land issues. I'm working on education advocacy. I'm working on, uh, you know, white supremacy issues. I'm working on reentry for ex, uh, ex-offenders, uh, family care, not foster care, all sorts of things. Anyway, I had gone home for uh, the holidays. And I was driving back into town. And I was right at the corner of where my apartment was at a stoplight waiting to turn. And this guy sort of flagged me down. He was like, hey, sis, do you know where the rally is tonight? And I was like, what rally? And he said the rally for that guy that the cops murdered. And I had no idea what he was talking about. So uh, I parked the car. I grabbed my then two-year-old daughter. And upstairs we went. And turned on my computer. And there was the video of Oscar Grant being shot in the back by Johannes Meserly. And I watched that video over and over and over again. Um, and I, when I talk about it now, I talk about it as my enough moment that though I had been in, you know, worked on other cases where law enforcement had killed people, there was something about, and I don't know what, I didn't know Oscar, I didn't know his family. There was something about that incident that there was this it in my life, you know, changed forever in, in that moment in terms of the work that I was going to focus on. So I got heavily involved in the struggle for justice for Oscar Grant, uh, and during that time co-founded an organization called the Onyx Organizing Committee, which was a black liberation organization that was really at the forefront of a lot of that struggle for justice for Oscar. And then after we, you know, we worked in partnership, of course, with lots of other people, and Johannes Mesley, the cop that killed Oscar, was ultimately convicted of involuntary manslaughter, which is a whole other conversation, but he was. And, and for our listeners, how long ago did that take place? Sorry, yes. Because when I give lectures at colleges and I say, who knows who Oscar Grant was? Because most of you were like 12 when he was killed. So in 2009, Oscar Grant was riding the BART train home on, after a New Year's Eve party. And he was on the BART train because his mother wanted him to be safe. Something happened on the train. Cops got called when the train got to Fruitvale Station in Oakland. Oscar was pulled off the train. He was called racial epitaphs, slammed on the ground, handcuffed, and then he was shot in the back. 
what resulted were mad uprisings all across Oakland and, and eventually the country. And there was actually even support from around the world that was during Arab Spring. And there were pictures of folks with signs saying, we are Oscar Grant. It was pretty amazing. Um, okay, so Onyx Organizing Committee, so we're pulling people into the streets regularly to respond to both state-sanctioned violence that was happening here in Oakland, but also across the country. And then we started having this conversation about, like, what are we actually doing, right? We experience violence at the hands of law enforcement every day in our communities. And actually, when they kill us, that's the most extreme version of that violence. Not only that, but what happens to families when when their loved one is, is stolen from them, right? Um, uh, when I, the families I work with call it the, the exclusive club that nobody wants to join. And then thirdly, like, are there alternatives to policing that we can be promoting so that we're visionary and not reactionary? And so that led to the birth of the Anti-Police Terror Project. And the very first committee that we really blew out was our first responders committee. And that committee responds every time we get a report that the cops have killed somebody. They are trained in trauma-informed investigating. They go talk to witnesses. They gather evidence. They identify the family. They talk to the family. They find out who this person was. So the media will say, oh, they were a suspect who stole a lollipop in 1922, as if that somehow just justifies them being killed today. We work really hard to find out who they were. They went to church. What, what favorite sports did they have? What was their relationship with their children, et cetera? And humanize these people, right? Because we're not, just, we're not losing suspects. We're losing lawyers and doctors and mothers and fathers and aunties and activists and a whole gamut uh, of folks. Um, then we provide organizing support and legal support, communication support, you name it, fundraising support to the families and walk with them through this journey. So I was in Oakland doing this work. Patrice was in Los Angeles doing her work, and she had this idea for a statewide network. And so we had a conversation about it and decided that the Justice Teams Network would be a dope way to replicate both APTP's rapid response model, but combine it with uh, a healing response model to deal with the trauma that communities suffer when states state violence occurs um, that she developed with her organization, Dignity and Power Now, and really worked towards building a statewide force of people that were rapidly responding to, but also engaging in policy and practice shifts that radically impact the way our communities are policed. So you made a lot of really good points that I'd like to follow up on. But before we get to that, I think to really understand this initiative and your activism, it's important to understand the history and purpose of the police. Could you walk us through that? Sure. I mean, that's easy. That's an easier answer than the first one, right? The first police in this country were the slave catchers in the Calvary. So their job was to hunt, catch, incarcerate, uh, maim, and kill black folks. And they're still doing their job, right? And and if you if you walk it through, so you went from law enforcement that whose was to uphold uh, race-based chattel slavery to law enforcement that was protecting the white backlash that came during Reconstruction to law enforcement that up upheld Jim Crow laws in the South, in, in the South, and informal segregation in the North through incredibly brutal means um, to law enforcement that brutally repressed the Black Panther Party and the Black Liberation Army and other movements for Black, you know, Black liberation and self-determination, um, all the way up to today. 
right? So, so their job is to uphold not just capitalism, but race-based capitalism, because that's what's unique about America is that the capitalism that was born here wasn't just about a group of poor people, you know, a mass group of poor people at the bottom so that a few wealthy people at the top could profit. It was about black people at the bottom so white people could profit. So something you said that really stood out to me is that we need solutions and alternatives that are visionary, not reactionary. What do you mean by that? So I mean that protest is important and it's good, right? It, it, it puts the person's name out there. It impacts the public debate when we're having conversations about police and policing and prisons. But there has to be something else, right? B- because this system isn't going to fix itself because as far as it's concerned, it's not broken. Right. It's doing what it was designed to do. So if the state isn't going to fix the, the genocide that's happening in, in, in this country, then it's up to the people to do it. And so we need to be having conversations about what are all the ways in which we can weaken this beast of a machine that does nothing but wreak havoc in our communities. And that looks like everything from divestment from police and policing. So in Oakland, for instance, the Oakland Police Department gets 50 percent of the general fund. The Anti-Police Terror Project, which is an anchor organization for the justice teams here in Oakland, is run, has been running and will continue to run a defund OPD campaign, which talks about taking half of what they get, so 25% of the general fund, and redirecting it towards things like mental health services, jobs, education, housing, all of the things that people way smarter than me have shown without a, a doubt actually keep communities safe. Um, it looks like in uh, supporting radical legislation at the state level, like AB 931, which would change the legal standard of force that police can use to justify killing us. So it moves from, I feared for my life, to police having to uh, prove that there was imminent danger uh, facing them or others. It looks like creating alternative security models like we have here with uh, Terha Ak, who's the co-founder of Anti-Police Dep- Police Terror Project, and his security team in the Laurel District, building relationships with buildings and with with business owners, excuse me, and the community so that they, they, they have an option to call them instead of the police. It looks like uh, replicating restorative justice models in our schools so that instead of suspension that kids are learning how to how to work things through it looks like what critical resistance is doing with the oakland power projects which is training mental health professionals to be the first responders to mental health crises instead of law enforcement so there's all of these these things that we can't that we are and can and should be doing more of that that start to remove the necessity of police being the answer to every problem that we have and reduce the the amount of engagement that communities of color are having with law enforcement and that directly will reduce the number of people that we're seeing die or be raped or abused or beaten at the hands of the men and women and people in blue. So Kat, in the aftermath of the Parkland shooting, there has been a huge wave of activism around gun control, around gun reform, and something that perhaps could be seen as as a backlash to that is the idea that communities of color have been pushing for these types of changes for many years, in some cases decades. And the idea that police violence is gun violence hasn't quite made it in the mainstream the way that the Parkland activism has. Can you talk a little bit about what it means when people say police violence is gun violence? Right. Well, it means that the primary way that they're killing us is with is with guns, right? That they, that in, in this country, so 
Let's look at the numbers. Last year, over 1,200 people that we know of were killed by law enforcement, right? Of that number, the vast majority of them were black and brown people per capita. 60% of black women that are murdered by police are unarmed at the time. Um, that's murder, right? That's murder by gun, and it's murder by cop with gun. Um, but somehow it gets erased out of the narrative when we're talking about gun violence because people largely are still unwilling to have a conversation that this method of police and policing that we have in this country in 2018 isn't working for anybody, and it's particularly not working for black and brown bodies who are dying at alarming rates at the hands of law enforcement. And something that's interesting about California is they have, I don't know if this is unique to California or if there are, are other forms similar across the country, the idea of a police officer's bill of rights. And, and your proposals have to do with amending that. Can you tell our listeners about what the police officer's bill of rights is and, and why it's problematic? Right. So the peace officer's bill of rights is a piece of statewide legislation that really makes law enforcement a protected class. Right. So it means things like, let's say you have a police officer who was in Riverside, California, and they have this egregious record of uh, excessive uses of force, maybe they even killed somebody, they can very quietly be moved to the Oakland Police Department with that record, and you don't have a right to find out what that record is because it's protected. It means that when law enforcement kills somebody and families are dying to know who the officer was that killed their loved one, what, the, what were the results of the investigation, what was the investigative process like, you can't get access to those records because the Peace Officer's Bill of Rights says that it could jeopardize the welfare and safety of law enforcement. So it, it creates this, the Peace Officer's Bill of Rights creates this blue wall of silence and protection around law enforcement that makes it very hard to hold police officers accountable um, for further behavior in our communities. So in terms of the police being a protected class, I think one of the most prominent examples is how they are never held accountable by the law for the violence they enact on black and brown bodies. Time and time again, we've seen them acquitted. We've seen them you know, even well, that's if they even get charged, right? So out of charged, the twelve, that's true. Out of the twelve hundred uh, deaths, murders, excuse me, that happened last year, only twelve police officers were even charged, and I believe that none of them were indicted. That's yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I uh, earlier this year I went to an event with Angela Davis and Patrice, and something really interesting that Angela Davis brought up was that it's it's really hard to be a prison abolitionist when you want to see the system hold itself accountable, you know? She was specifically talking about, you know, law enforcement not being held accountable for the slaughter of black and brown people. How do you think we need to hold them accountable, you know, when we're also advocating for these visionary alternative systems to the carceral state? My abolitionist practice does not need to start with my oppressor, right? And that right now, that's what we have. Right now, what we have is incarceration and prison as a consequence. And that is actually the demands that families put forth. It's very very rarely those of us that are activists, right? It's the families that say, I want these cops jailed, convicted, charged, jailed, charged, convicted, and jailed for the murder of my loved one. And our job is to support them in, in that endeavor up to and until we have another system that is able to hold law enforcement accountable for the lives that they steal. So 
I'd like to go back to um, the gun control movement for a moment because something that I found very concerning and I know a lot of activists of color have spoken out about, about kind of the white-led movement, is the support for cops in the military. The idea that citizens shouldn't have guns, but the state should. You know, that citizens shouldn't have these assault weapons, but if you're shooting a bunch of black and brown people abroad without being held accountable, that's totally fine. How do you respond to that? Well, I think it's just a, an absolute disconnect, um, you know, b- between our communities. And, and it also shows where we place value in terms of human life, right? It shows a lack of value for black life, a lack of value for brown life, a lack of value for indigenous life. And I think it reinforces what I was saying earlier that by and large, community still sees police as these heroes that are here to protect us and serve us, which in communities like Parkland is probably true right? White, wealthy community. So that, that, that is exactly who law enforcement exists to protect, uh, or, or white folks that are benefiting from our current uh, system of capitalism. So um, I think it's important. And, and I will say, I did watch the, the march, the live program of the march. And, and while, yes, there needs to be more uh, definitely, there, there were a couple of the young people who did connect the dots uh, among the realities of, of black and brown folks, uh, being that that's our experience every single day versus, you know, these sparsed out incidences of mass shootings at, at, at white schools by white children, uh, I should add. I think that the, the bigger conversation or the, the other piece of the conversation that folks need to be talking more about is how come Nicholas Cruz can be uh, taken to jail alive or, or Tom Ranking can be taken to jail alive. These are, these are white boys that have committed egregious crimes, who have guns, who have shown without a doubt that they're willing to use it, and somehow... Law enforcement manages to find them, arrest them, and get them to jail alive. But black people with cell phones can't make it into their grandmother's backyard. It's really a shame. And and the contrast between, um, you know, when you think about Tamir Rice, who was a child, he was shot twice just walking in public. And then you have Dylan Roof, for example, who was a known mass murderer, and he gets picked up without incident. And then I believe, if I recall correctly, they got him lunch. They took him to the Burger way. King. They, they took, took him, him to Burger, to Burger King. King. Yep. And then you have he someone was like Stephen Clark in Oakland who was shot 20 times in his backyard, but then the Waffle House shooter also picked up without incident. So you are absolutely correct, and everybody should be talking about this. Um, I'm really shocked that more people are not. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, and I don't mean to be facetious, but this country has historically shown it doesn't value black life, right? And 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 not only that, but then when you start to talk about the importance of value in black life, then that for some reason threatens white fragility in ways that I don't quite understand. Um, that if somehow we're talking about that black life should be valued equally to white life, that you know white folks uh, respond with, well, what about me? Well, it's been about you since the founding of this country. Could we get a little bit of that, right? Well, or, I really think the Black Lives Matter movement has been so integral to the changing of perception because I really think that it has started to to permeate throughout my generation and in my network. And I'm a straight white man living in Brooklyn. And, and I can definitely tell you that people are becoming more conscious. And I think that's a testament to the work that you and, and your team and, and your networks are doing. I hope so. I, I do. I hope so. 
I hope that that continues to play out. I mean, I don't mean to sound cynical, but you know, the the it was the youth in the in the sixties and seventies that were leading the anti-war movements and the hippie movements and the let's all live together movements, and those teens grew up to be their parents and continued to perpetuate, you know, systems of oppression. So I hope so. I hope something's different. I do. You know, I I think that's something really big. How unsurprising these deaths are. I think something that really stood out to me was um, in Charlottesville, a a lot of white people saying they were shocked by this violence, but, you know, I and all my friends of color felt like it was kind of inevitable, like Heather Heyer was always going to die. Mm -hmm. How do you, as an activist, work to fight that numbness, to, like, stay in it, to not get totally burnt out so you can't keep being in this movement anymore? I don't work for that to be true. I don't... The families that I work with, I could never be numb to that pain. I could never be numb to the wails and the tears and the screams of a mother or a father or a partner or a child that's lost, you know, their loved one. Um, And then I think the the other part of it is is that, you know, I, I get a lot of lovely mail emails and stuff from people who don't agree with me um i'm being facetious when i use the word lovely but i I get accused of being you know being hateful that i i hate police and i hate white people and it's just it's not true first of all there's not the energy to do this work and what it takes to be fueled by hate that's first but second of all i do it because i love the people like deeply with uh on with without waiver um, and so I think that deep abiding love, uh, plus the fact that I am privileged to get to work with some of the most amazing families and human beings on the planet, keep me very present in the work. So thinking about how we can work locally and work on state levels, you just announced that you are running for mayor of Oakland. Can you tell us how you want to translate your activism work into the the city of Oakland? Yeah, I want to bring the 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 needs the voices the the desires the passion the will of the people into the halls of power right so for for far too long and what happens around the country and certainly has happened in the city of Oakland over and over again is that these politicians go into the community they do these listening sessions and then they make all these sorts of promises to community about what they need and then they get into city hall and they push their own agenda and what that has meant for the last 4 years in Oakland is a mass push out of black and brown longtime residents of Oakland it has meant uh, seven black men dead at the hands of police. It has meant uh, uh, musical chairs with the chief of police because there was nobody inside of the department that didn't have skeletons in, in their in their uh, closet. It meant the promotion of police officers who knew about the rape of a 14-year-old child. And it, it is, and it's meant that nearly 3,000 people are sleeping on the streets of Oakland every single night, 80% of whom used to be housed, right? It's meant development over people, um, capitalism over community, and enough is enough. And so the idea with the campaign and the idea should I win is is that this is a people's campaign and I will I will be and am a people's mayor. I didn't decide to run of my own volition. I was asked to run by many by people in different se- sectors in Oakland. And so my commitment is to make this a campaign that is about the people and about the real things that are happening in the streets of Oakland that politicians want to tap dance around with sound bites. 
So a lot of people of color, I, I think justifiably, are cautious about getting involved in electoral politics or even casting a ballot because they feel that it would be rewarding or validating a system intended to oppress. How do you respond to that? And how do you, what, what do you say to encourage those people to get involved? That right now we have to do all roads in, right? I, I had no intention of getting engaged in electoral politics either. However, while we're on the pathway to building self-determined communities and while we're on the pathway of figuring out what people-powered communities look like, this is where the power lies. And so we can't ignore it. We can't pretend that it's not there. And there's that famous saying that if you don't have a seat at the table, you're probably what's on the menu. Right. And so this is a way of giving us a seat at the table. And the other thing, and we're still working this out with our legal team, but our campaign, my, our campaign, because it's not about Cat Brooks, it's about us, um, is planning on, on putting forth a community accountability mechanism. So what does it look like if you elect Cat Brooks to mayor? What does it look like if you elect Cat Brooks to mayor and I don't do any of the things that you sent me to go do? What is what is the. Uh, what does the, the, the reset button look like? What does it look like when people say, okay, you have to step down because you're not doing your job. That's, we don't have anything like that. We, we don't. Well, we, 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 we will with, with, with the Cap Brooks for Mayor campaign. Hmm. The people deserve it. If, if, they put, if we put you in office or the people put me in office, then they should have the right to remove me from office without having to collect 8,000 or 10,000 or whatever the crazy number is of signatures, right, to even be able to make it, make it a conversation. We, I, it, it baffles me continuously when I go into um, to these halls of power, to city council meetings or board of supervisors meetings or whatever it is, and the arrogance with which elected officials sit there as though they don't work for us. They work for us. We pay their salaries. Their job is to do what we say, right? And, and that's not happening, and, and that's the culture shift that I'm hoping to, to push so this, this is pretty specific, but I think it is one of the most interesting things about the incumbent Oakland mayor. It was very prominent when they uh, publicly alerted their community about ICE raids. I'm curious about getting your thoughts on the incumbent mayor's decision to alert the community and this new movement and what you would want to do as mayor to protect undocumented communities? Well, the first thing I would do would, would be to follow the directions of the organizations that actually serve undocumented communities in, in Oakland, which asked her to do exactly the opposite of what she did, which would have been to reach out to them directly and let them mobilize their communities. That's first. The second thing is that undocumented fo folks didn't just start getting deported out of the city of Oakland when Trump was in office. They were being deported at massive rates when Obama was in office and wasn't a concern for Libby Schaaf then. So while I hope that her actions actually did lead to the prevention of families getting deported, um, I question her motives. Right. Um, Libby talks about sanctuary city for all. I would be very interested as mayor in, in what that, excuse me, Libby Schaff talks about that Oakland is a sanctuary city, but she only means for some. And I want to know what that actually looks like in practice. Is it sanctuary for black bodies too? Is it sanctuary for queer bodies too? Trans bodies? Is it, do you see what I'm saying? Indigenous bodies? Um, so making good on the promise of Oakland really being a sanctuary city and working in partnership with the immigrant communities that I've been in partnership with for the last decade to continue to build an Oakland that works for all people. 
If folks are interested in learning more or getting involved in your campaign or the Justice Teams Network, where where can they find you online? Sure. So you can find the Justice Teams Network online at www.justiceteams.org. And in terms of my mayoral campaign, uh, look on Facebook for the Cat Brooks for Mayor uh, page or on Twitter at Cat's Commentary. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're really glad to have this conversation. We're really glad to see someone like you running for mayor. I think it's so important to have activists involved. And, you know, as we discussed earlier, there tends to be this divide between the activist world and the electoral politics world. And I'm really glad you're bridging that. Thank you. Uh, It it should be an interesting journey over the next few months. (laughs) I'd imagine. (laughs) Sure. Okay, great. Well, again, for our listeners, if you want to hear more interviews with activists and candidates, make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media, subscribe to our newsletter at millennialpolitics.co, and stay tuned for the next episode of our podcast. Thanks for listening.